Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so today's episode is brought to you by Zencaster. And I remember back in the day where I was looking at putting together Zencaster, I was looking for a solution that would really help me in putting things together. And essentially, this is what allowed me to bring deal makers to life. I mean, basically, Zencaster, what it is, is an all-in-one solution where you just send the link to the person that you're looking to interview. Essentially, they would plug in their computer with their video, with the audio, and then basically you are good to go. You would just piece everything together, give it to your audio engineer, or even edit it yourself, and you are off to the races. Now, if you're looking at getting into podcasting, you should definitely check Zencaster out. And you could also get a 30% discount. And this is a discount code that you will be able to redeem by going into Zen, and that is csnzebraen.ai forward slash dealmakers and then number zero. And lastly, you know, I was very much blown away when I found out that investing in wine has been one of the best kept secrets amongst the ultra wealthy. And this is now not the case anymore. You know, I came across this solution, which is called VinoVest, and they are a great, great solution that allows you to diversify investing by implementing or including wines into your portfolio. I mean, take a look at this. Wine has one third of the volatility of the stock market, and yet it has outperformed the global equities market over the past 30 years with 10.6% annualized revenues. So it's a really good way to diversify your portfolio. And you could also get two months of free investing by just going into the Send and that is csnzebraen.ai forward slash dealmakers. And by just going there, you will be able to redeem your discount. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I think that we're going to be enjoying very much our guest today. You know, the story is really phenomenal. And I think that uh, when it comes to building, scaling in a very short period of time, raising money, different ways of raising money too, especially for the business that we're going to be talking about. I think that you are all going to find this mind-blowing. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Weigan. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. I uh, mentioned this to you, but uh, I've, I've listened to quite a few episodes of your show. So when you reached out, you know, it's, a, it's a treat to be on myself. Well, I got to tell you, it's an honor to have you. So, so let's, let's do a little bit of a walk through memory lane here, Way. So, so you are originally born and raised in, in Singapore, and you did travel quite a little bit too. You, know, you also lived in New Jersey for, for a while before you returned back. So give us a walk through memory lane uh, during your childhood and, and how that was. Yeah, absolutely. So I grew I grew up I was born and raised in Singapore. And for, for those of your audience not familiar, Singapore is literally on the other side of the planet. 12-hour right, time difference, right? Right now, it's, you know, 4.30 here. It's like 4.30 in Singapore, too. Just flip the p.m. and a.m. Uh, and it's about a 19-hour direct flight from New York as well, right? Uh, and, and so I grew up in, I was born and raised uh, in Singapore. And, uh, you know, one thing about, about Singapore, I will say, and that, that was really, that I only appreciated later in life. So Singapore has a 88% home ownership rate, right? 
in the U.S., the home ownership rate is about 65%, right? So of all the, the families and, and households, right, how many of them actually own the home that they live in? And I think this, you know, it's the kind of thing you take for granted as a kid growing up. But then, you know, later, later in, in, in life, you realize like how much that did for, for me and for the country. And, and I bring this up, you know, because the mission of Ribbon is to make homeownership achievable, right? And so like all the little pieces kind of come together to make that meaningful for me, for my co-founder. Uh, and for that mission to resonate with us that we want to spend our lives doing this specific business. Um, and so what that did, though, for Singapore is that Singapore was basically got our independence in 1965, right? After World War II, after the British colony. Um, and we were essentially kind of kicked out of Malaysia. And we're this tiny island. You can drive across Singapore in literally an hour in without speeding, right? You can drive across Singapore in an hour on the longer side of the island, right? So it's tiny island. At that point, about 3 million people, now about 6 million people. And what Singapore did with this homeownership rate was that everyone owned a piece of the pie as Singapore went from developing Southeast Asian port to right now is third highest GDP per capita in the world, right? And for context, the U.S. is about 10, right? So one of the wealthiest nations in the world on a per capita basis. Um, and that wealth spread because of that really high, nearly 90% homeownership rate that lifted an entire generation out of poverty, including right? My, 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 really my grandparents' generation, right? My, for my parents. And with that, then, you know, I was, I had an awesome childhood in Singapore. <laughs> Can't say it was, uh, it was the, the hardest child, childhood. But, um, you know, I, I was in the U.S. for a little bit as a kid, uh, and I knew I wanted to come back. There's certainly a lot about the America that was really fun, exciting for me. And I eventually got to come back uh, for, for college in you know, 2007, went to, went to Duke in, in North Carolina, and, uh, you know, it's, it's really interesting to pay attention then to homeownership in the U.S., right, uh, at that point, um, because you know, Duke uh, and, and North Carolina is actually the first state that, that Ribbon was in. And that's not really a coincidence uh, for myself as well. So um, that was really the, the early part of my childhood. Uh, another thing worth mentioning there was uh, I was in the Army for two years, right? Singapore has a mandatory uh, conscript army and you go kind of when you're 18. So from, you know, when I, when I got to college, I was 21, I was the kind of the alcohol run person at that point. Right. But, <laughs> but back in Singapore, you know, I basically spent two years, uh, first year kind of training to be an officer and the second one being an officer. And while, you know, I, there's not a lot that's really relevant to entrepreneurship in the future. I will say that kind of being thrown into the fire of leadership, uh, when you're 18 years old, having to be responsible for the lives of all these people who are frankly older than you at the time, you know, certainly taught me a little bit uh, back in the day. Now, uh, would you say that perhaps that um, also taught you about ethic and, 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 and discipline? Yeah, definitely on the, both, the, both the ethics and discipline side. You know, I think that there's a lot of, a lot of the, the ways that people run business today, and, and Ribbon certainly sees us in this point of view, right, is that we're, yes, we have a bottom line. Yet, yes, we're trying to make a great financial return, right? But we're also trying to do something good for the world, right? And that is, it's meaningful to me and my co-founder because we've been part of startups before, right? This is, you know, this is our first time being founders, but we've been part of various startups before. And we knew that if we were going to kind of commit to something that is frankly, like it, it's startups can be a grind. It can be, can take a long time, right? It's not always up and to the right. We knew we wanted a mission that really mattered. And so to the point of, you know, ethics and values, I think for Ribbon, you know, we very much view ourselves as a mission-driven company to make homeownership achievable. And that is, you know, it's just why, it's just kind of why we exist, right? And we'll, we'll make a lot of money along the way and we build it, you know, but we, we have this, this quote that we stole from uh, Walt Disney is that uh, Walt Disney said, uh, we make, we make money to make movies. We don't make movies to make money. And at Ribbon, we have that version of the quote is that we make money to make homeownership achievable, not the other way around, right? And so the, the mission driven is, is really the core of it all. Even if, you know, for us building a long-term sustaining business 
is the the point of that is to affect that mission at scale. And we'll talk about Ribbon in just a little bit. Now, one of the things here that is interesting is that you're not the typical, you know, technical guy that uh, fell in love with computers when they were like five or six or seven or whenever that was. I mean, you actually came across this in college. So, I mean, it came a little bit late um, in the game for you, but but nonetheless, better late than never. So uh, I guess for you, how was how was that moment like? I mean, what what really captured your attention about this whole you know computer you know thing? Yeah, it's funny you know as a as a kid, certainly played my fair share of uh, video games, but uh, but never never got into programming you know, and never never quite got into programming in the way that I know a lot of the other uh, technical co-founders and, and engineers have um, prior. And so in college, for me, you know, in my in my freshman year, um, I remember a professor saying to us something to the effect of like. Hey, learn programming in case you need to pay the bills one day, you know, in case you need a job one day. <laughs> and um, so I just took an intro course for fun, uh, and we made some games, you know. And it was really, it was, it was really, really fun. I when I found that I had an aptitude for it, right, and I actually found it really, really in, enjoyable because you kind of had this ability to just, just through the sheer, sheer thoughts and 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 code, like kind of build something from scratch, and and that was really, really powerful. And then from then on, you know, I was all in, right, kind of dove uh, headlong into the, the major, really transferred my major uh, to computer science and then uh, focused on, on that and really going deep on computer science at you. Now, you've had, you know, before you actually went at it with Ribbon, you know, with your real first baby, and you were like you were uh, alluded to before is that you've been involved with startups before. And I think that for you, the first encounter was uh, when you did your internship at Box and there was just 60 employees. What was it? Because, I mean, now Box, I mean, they went public, tremendous success. When, when there's a company that doesn't have so many employees or it's not as big, I mean, 60, you know, you can still be considered early stage to a certain degree. I mean, what, what was there? What, what, what kind of culture or what kind of drive did you experience that you're like, wow, you know, if I ever launch my own thing, it's going to be something like this? So yeah, I interned at Box in, in 2010, and uh, I remember at the beginning of summer when I joined and kind of got situated. Because remember, at that point, you know, startups were not national in nature, right? It's not like there's there's information about there's no like you know Miami tech scene or Austin tech scene, right? It's really just Silicon Valley uh, at the point with a bit in New York, a bit in Boston, um, and so for for me to fly out from Durham, North Carolina, to Silicon Valley and just really immersed by tech, right? That was that was very formative. Uh, to me, because it's like, oh, there's this whole world of startups, and it really kind of opened my eyes to it more than more than anything. I think at Box, I joined in the beginning of summer is 20 people. By the time I left, it was probably you know 90 people. All right, so that that growth there was really extraordinary. Um, the thing I so I was working on iPhone stuff, and that was pretty cutting cutting edge at the time. But the thing that I really remember, I'll say, is is Aaron Levy, uh, who is the CEO. He's still the CEO of Box. You know what? A, what a character. Um, and uh, he was very young at the time, right? It's still, you know, still a young guy, a little more gray hairs now. But um, I remember seeing in him, um, it was pretty inspiring. It's like this is what it takes, right? Because that guy is really committed to the cause, believes in the mission of the company, and because of that, he's able to rally these these this team of amazing accomplished Silicon Valley people, most of whom are older and more experienced than him uh, to his cause. Um, and then on top of that, right, he did that after box for like so many, like this is what, at least more than, more than 10, good, good more than 10, 12, 15 years at this point. And I'm not surprised because you could see it in him that this was his thing, right? This was his life's work. And that was really inspiring to me um, as someone whom I, I went out to Silicon Valley, kind of come back, came back to Duke knowing that, oh, one day I'd love to start something. Wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be cool? And it was really inspired by that experience. 
So, and then you went to Telepart, and I think that the experience uh, with Telepart, I think, you know, perhaps gave you, you know, access or visibility to what a potential transaction could look like. I mean, they were acquired by Twitter for over half a billion dollars, and you then joined Twitter. But I guess as you being part of that, also joining Twitter and seeing that integration, you know, what, what, what have you learned, you know, during that experience about an integration? Because most acquisitions fail, at least 90% of them because of integration issues. So what did you learn about integration? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think the, you know, the, the integration, I'm not going to sugarcoat it, right? It's, a, it's like all these are tricky integrations because you're merging two different cultures. And so a lot of Telepart really folded into, you know, Twitter direct response ads. And there's still a couple of folks there today, right? Um, and I think for us, what I, what I learned is that the cultural piece kind of matters above all and defining, you know, what the, what the culture of the kind of combined entity needs to be. And Twitter was a much bigger organization. Twitter was like, you know, 3,000 plus people at that point. Telepart was, you know, less, about 100 people. But at that point, we were, we were doing probably 100 and we were doing more than $100 million in revenue at the time. And so it was this really kind of high leverage, small team. And so we folded into Twitter ads, you know, hoping to make a bigger impact. And I remember at the time, I was like, you know, why would I stay, right? Because I was just a, you know, I was, I was an employee, right? I wasn't, I wasn't on the founder. I was, I was kind of asking myself, why would I stay? And I did stay for, for about one and a half years um, with, with Twitter. Um, and I remember there was this kind of, we, we were bought into this opportunity to do something at somewhere bigger, right? And, you know, uh, affect even bigger impact at scale. Uh, and I think that was, a, that was a good pitch. And because I think the, the way that these things go wrong is that the kind of the missions are not aligned and look like not not everything went as well as possibly could um, but certainly learned across through that integration i will say maybe the one biggest takeaway like the two biggest takeaways for me for from the telepart experience itself where i'd spent four years kind of grew up as an engineer uh, into an engineering leader was uh one like the quality of team is everything right the telepart and telepart had the numbers to back it right you know more than hundred more than a more than a million dollars in revenue per person past that hundred million dollar revenue range just kind of kind of puts it like the quantitative numbers behind it and everyone there was just excellent at what they did right and on the other side you know i i learned a ton from josh mcfarland who's the co-founder and ceo of of telepart and i will say that was a that was a bet that that i had made when i joined telepart instead of any other company out of college um, that has paid off in spades you know when josh uh, co-led the seed round in ribbon back in 2017 when we were just kind of and an idea, right? And then he also uh, co-led the he he led the Series B and joined our board uh, with Greylock as as the the lead of that Series B round back in in 2019. So the, these kind of networks, right? This is like a relationship that I had started with Josh more than 10 years ago now, uh, yeah. and uh, this this guy's on my board. So it's uh, it's pretty it's pretty nice to kind of see that come full circle for me. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. I got to tell you that. You know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on 
when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Severson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a Series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. Let's talk about that coming into full circle, you know, and, and also Ribbon. Because Ribbon, you know, your, your, your baby, you know, the first time that you decide to really go at it, uh, you left uh, Twitter. And then it was kind of like a process, really, to, to come across Ribbon or perhaps, you know, Cheval, your, your co-founder, uh, that really uh, propelled this into you guys going at it and uh, really, you know, going into full force with Ribbon. So what was that process like? Uh, and uh, how did you guys go about really saying, okay, let's screw it, let's do it? <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, it's, it's, it's always hard to make that leap, you know. And for, for, for me, I left, um, I moved to New York with, with Twitter and I knew, moved to New York, not for, not for any business specific reason, but, you know, my, my wife, then, then girlfriend, now wife, right, her, uh, she had grown up here. So I moved to New York for, for that reason. Really, uh, and then um, when I met Shavel, he was still at, he was still a, a SVP at uh, Managed by Q, right, which was later bought by by WeWork as well. Uh, and we met, but we started to jam together on ideas, um, and he really started introducing me to housing and home buying, right? Because you know, Shavel for him, right, he he has a story of his family achieving home ownership in California back in the '80s, and and really like um, basically against against the redlining um, that existed at the time, they were able to kind of pull together a community loan to achieve homeownership, right? So he was he was going to start a real estate company. I, like, I knew that from the moment I, I met him. It was a question of when. Uh, and then for me to join forces with him, you know, I mentioned the Singapore and the homeownership part. Um, but for me in 2017, um, Joyce and I were um, were looking for a, a place in, in New York, right? And trying to buy a home as well, right? Uh, and I wasn't do this to, doing this to, to dog food the, the product or anything, right? Quite the, in fact, it's kind of the opposite where a lot of this inspired the idea and so I was looking for a home, not for any, um, I wasn't trying to achieve the American dream. You know, I'm, I'm an immigrant. I'm still, I'm still an immigrant here. Um, I was trying to, I bought a, I was trying to buy a house because my mother-in-law told me you have to buy a home to marry her daughter. Right. And right. that kind of honest <laughs> truth, right. That was really why I was doing it. Uh, and so on the weekdays, I would work with Shavel on these ideas. And this is before we even incorporated anything. Right. Um, this was like way before seed funding. Uh, and we were just working on ideas and we both quit our jobs and was working on this full time. Um, and weekdays, we would uh, do all this research on Ribbon. And then every Sunday, I would diligently go look at homes, right, in Queens and Brooklyn, this kind of radius outside of Manhattan that we could afford. Uh, and, you know, I had gone through this acquisition, right, but um, I wasn't, I didn't make so much money where I could just kind of buy a home with cash. At the same time, I was an uh, entrepreneur um, or to a bank, you would call that unemployed, right, and <laughs> unable to get a mortgage as well. Right. Um, and at the same time, at the time, Brooklyn, you know, two bedroom in Brooklyn, a really competitive price range, right? You know, um, and so what we did eventually was we had to scrape together a cash offer, right, through the savings that we had for me through the acquisition and having the, the luck of gone through that. Uh, and then also through friends and family cash, right? And so we eventually put a cash offer on a home in Brooklyn. Now, how lucky we are to be able to do that even, right? So we won, 
Um, and, you know, I was researching this stuff on weekdays, so I knew a lot about it, right? And, and how to win on an offer. But um, I remember the day that we were going to, we're, we're, um, I got the offer accepted, hadn't wired the money yet. Uh, I remember I got a call from my realtor and they said like, hey, wait, we need you to wire the money today by end of day, because one, we have another cash offer and that's higher than yours. And if you don't wire the money, right, this home is not yours. So I, I was working with Shavel. I drop everything. I go to the Bank of America. I wire the money. Uh, and then thankfully, we, we lock in the home. And then I know for a fact, right, and my realtor told me this, like, if our offer was not cash, right, and this is kind of what, what Ribbon does today, if our offer not, was not cash, that call would have been, sorry, way the home is going to someone else, right? It would not have been, hey, wire the money today, right? Yeah. And it's only because our offer is cash that, that that was even the call. And, you know, nice thing is almost the same week that Ribbon closes our seed funding, um, I close on that home, right? And Maybe. so a lot of this inspired that idea, right? How do we enable every family to compete on level, play, level playing field with the cash offers? And so to your question, how do you drop everything? At this point, we dropped everything. We're working on stuff. But kind of when you commit, when you know the idea is the one, I do think there's like a there's like a gut feeling that comes from there's certainly other market research, right? And it did help for me, you know, I'd personally done this myself, <laughs> that I knew that it would be valuable to the many, many more people who are kind of stuck in the same situation out there. That's incredible. So now in terms of the business model, how do you guys make money? So we make money through through two ways, right? The primary way is that we basically take a small transaction fee, right, when we buy a home for people, right? And so Ribbon's product, Ribbon Cash. What we do is we help everyday families who need a mortgage to buy a home. We help them compete with wealthy individuals and investors by upgrading their offer to cash, right? And the cash offers are about four times more likely to win. And in this market, especially if you're anywhere in the Southeast or, or Southern United States, right, and you're trying to buy a home, right, if you don't have a cash offer, right, it's going to be extremely difficult, right, um, to buy a home because the average home gets multiple offers, right? And it's not uncommon to get north of 50 even 100 offers on that home. And so we help those families win with cash, right? And so what we do then is that we basically stand as a backup offer saying that if you, if you need Ribbon to buy on April the 5th, if you, if you, for whatever reason, can't close on your loan on April the 15th, right, a month from today, then Ribbon will step in and buy the house, right? And then we charge a transaction fee. We charge less if we don't need to buy the home and we charge a little bit more if we need to step in and buy the home. And if we step in and buy it, we reserve it for you in that product called Ribbon Reserve. And then you move in and then you pay rent prorated to the day. So you, if you rent it for three days and then you buy it back from us after that, right, you only pay literally three days of rent, which happens more than you think. And so our primary revenue model is through that transaction fee with a kind of very small percentage of uh, our customers needing to kind of move in rent from us for usually a couple of months and then they'll buy the home back from us. That's amazing. Now, obviously, for this, you were alluding to, I mean, you guys have done multiple rounds of financing. So how, how much capital have you guys raised today? Yeah, so in total, we've raised, you know, from C to Series C, about $130 million in equity uh, over these four rounds. And, and then um, because Ribbon is a business that buys homes, right, we've also raised more than $500 million in credit facilities and real estate capital as well. And how does it, uh, how is it, how does it differ? You know, when you're raising money in equity, people that are really there with you in the long run, you know, helping perhaps at a strategic level with the operations and stuff like that, like the people that you were mentioning, Greylock or the former co-founder of Telepart, uh, how, how does it work when you're going for the credit facility or maybe like the debt, you know, type of financing to support yep. the actual operational piece of the equation? Yeah, that's that's a great question. So on the equity side, you know, we we raised from investors. I would say for the first three rounds, actually, almost for all our rounds, um, it was really set up from the beginning, right? Where the co-leads of the original round were um, Josh McFarlane and Greylock, 
who was my who was my boss at Telepart, and then uh, Pete Flint at NFX, right? One of the top seed funds in the Valley. And Pete Flint was also the, the founder and CEO of Trulia, right? And he was on the board of Zillow. So we knew we had this kind of um, killer starting group. Uh, and then we also, as part of that, as a smaller check on the seed, but the person who led the A round was Matt Harris from Bain Capital Ventures, who is one of the top fintech, if not the top fintech investor out there, right? Uh, and that was really helpful because the, the point of that, your original question, right? How does that capital defer? Right, the equity capital, you know, it's it's probably familiar to a lot of the folks in in your audience. The debt capital is not right; it's different. And so, when we buy a home, right, some small percentage comes from our balance sheet, and then vast majority comes from these credit facilities that we draw down from, right. And those are folks like you know, um, for the ones that we've announced, right, Goldman Sachs, right, uh, along with some of the funds that they're partner with that that um, fund those capital, along with some other credit facilities um, that we partner with as well. And so, the way that works is those are cr- like basically. If we're buying homes, that cre- that capital is collateralized by the homes, right? And the homes produce rent. They're co- they're collateralized by the, one of the most sought after assets in the U.S. in residential real estate, right? And so with that kind of capital, you essentially don't have to dilute your company, right? But the fact of it is, in the early days, you're not gonna get Goldman to give you a credit facility of like five hundred million dollars, right? You kind of have to earn your way there. And so in the early days, there's certainly more balance sheet usage. And then over time, you know, at this point, we've gotten to the point where really the when we buy a home, very like, you know, almost nothing is, is from our, our, our capital. We, we want it. We still have skin in the game there yet. But but vast majority of the capital comes from the credit facility. And that's really important because as we think about, you know, how do you be the most efficient with capital? Right. How do you make sure you don't dilute the company and existing investors and the founders and employees unnecessarily? The way to do it is, you know, you have the right capital. For the right the right things and you know in our case that's being very clear about the split between real estate and debt facilities uh, as well and then company operations and company equity got it now in this case you know really uh for the people that are listening to get an idea on the scope and you know the size of the operation i mean anything that you can share maybe number of employees or anything else yeah just just to put in perspective at the beginning of last year in 2021 we we're about 60 people right now we are north of 250. wow Right. Uh, and, you know, by the middle of this year, probably be about 300. And we are, you know, we're, we're careful to hire. Right. I just would say we're not the kind of company that just, you know, adds headcount as a solution to everything. In fact, we're very mindful of that to build as scalable a model as possible. Right. Um, but the reality is in that time, you know, the business has grown um, and not, not, not um, exaggerating, literally has grown more than 10x uh, in that period of time. Right. Uh, and so to if we can, you know, 3x. 4x our employee base and you know more than 10x our business you know at least you're kind of building some operating leverage as you get more and more scale there absolutely now in that regard i mean how do you step on the gas be you know making sure that you're not going to be breaking very critical things yeah so for us you know we, we we're buying homes for people right and you know when we're, we're we're buying literally the most expensive thing they will ever buy in their lives, right? This is a family, every transaction matters to us. And it's really important to us because as the numbers go up and to the right, and it's impossible to tell every single story anymore, we still, like, we really go out of our way to, one, remind our team that every single one of these is a family achieving homeownership, right? And so be proud of that, right? But also treat it with that care, right? You know, you can't, you can't screw up someone's home purchase in the same way, like, oh, you know, my page doesn't load for, for my social media app, right? It's not the end of the world, right? When uh, we mess up on a home purchase, it is, it, it is like, you know, it's a family waiting the driveway with their moving truck, can't, can't move in on that day, kids are crying, right? Need to check in the hotel, um, and it's kind of all falling apart for them. So the way, the way that we 
do it is we, one, we use a lot of technology to scale, right? Uh, and I think for us, you know, for, for me as a te- technical co-founder, one of the prerequisites for, for choosing a startup and, and the right kind of startup was that technology had to be a real lever there to use. And so we built a lot of technology that actually, the, the, I would say the biggest difference between Ribbon and our competitors and why we're so scalable um, is that we partner with, we empower instead of disrupt the real estate ecosystem. So Ribbon works with real estate agents, brokerages, and lenders in the ecosystem to partner their clients. So they have this B2B2C model. Turns out that is far more efficient because a good agent can do, you know, 10, maybe tech-enabled, you can do like 20, 30 transactions a year, right? An account manager at Ribbon, right, can do 30 transactions a month, right? And these are, you know, that's just the, that's just the kind of the median end, right? We've had folks do 60, right? So the order of scale is just different. And for us, that was really important because we, we did not want to build a business that was, you know, we, we kind of chose, right? We didn't want to build a vertically integrated business that helped a small slice of the market. We wanted to really build something big that could kind of touch a lot of transactions and really uh, blanket the market and help as many home buyers as we can. You know? And so when it comes to scalability, I think the B2B2C model and the technology, those are the two pillars that have allowed us to scale so quickly. Now, imagine you go to sleep tonight, wait, and you wake up in a world five years later, you know, where the, where the vision of Ribbon is fully realized. What does that world look like? Yeah, I think, you know, the, so the mission is to make homeownership achievable, right? And so at some, at some scale, at that kind of scale, and that kind of like wake up five years later scale, we, we would like to have causally affected homeownership rates in the United States, right? And you know, maybe somewhere else, maybe Spain, maybe Singapore one day, right? Um, but uh, <laughs> we'll start with, the, start with the United States, right? right? And then for us, you know, the, the home buying experience you still want to shop and you still want to like physically look at homes. I think that, that, will, that will be the case. But the experience there should be as simple as like when it's time to buy, right? Financing, right? Your, your, your lender, whoever you choose as a lender, whomever you choose as agent, all those things are like nicely integrated, right? And financing is, is really simple and you can kind of buy with a tap of a button with these partners, right? That you're partner with the right agents, the right lenders, um, with the best terms that you can get, right? And so really simplifying that experience to make really the one one way that my co-founder likes to describe it is home buying should be as simple as renting. Now, I argue renting can be a lot simpler than it is today, but it, it, that's kind of a baseline. And then you can imagine we get to that point where you know that there's this kind of buy now button and the the home purchases are truly as simple as a, a tap of a button. But ultimately, in the service of home buyers, right, wanting to have this really great experience um, that lives up to the magnitude of the the most expensive purchase of their lives. Nice. Now, imagine I put you into a time machine. And I was able to take you back in time to perhaps, you know, 2017, where you were thinking about starting, you know, the company. And, and I gave you the opportunity of having a chat with your younger self, also with uh, your uh, co-founder, you know, younger self, being able to give, you know, the two of you one piece of business advice for launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Yeah, that's a great question. There are two that come to mind, but I would probably narrow it to be very intentional about building the right culture. Um, and this is kind of like a cliche thing for entrepreneurs at this point, but it's part of why the advice is so good, you know, <laughs> because no one ever thinks it's that important until it's kind of too late, right? And at this point, you know, the, the ribbon culture is probably the single biggest reason why we, we are successful and why we're able to grow so fast, right? And because the people want to work here, they're mission-driven. Um, they're aligned with our approach. But it took a while to get to this point, you know, and the early team, we knew a lot of them and that was easy. It's at that point where you're kind of scaling, right, from, you know, 10 people to like uh, next 50 people to 100 people. 
that you really want to hone in on making sure that when you go from that 10 to, to 50, right, you are really nailing down and write, almost like write down what you're hiring for, what you care about, right? What's non-negotiable. For example, you know, mission-driven is something that we care a lot about. And there's a lot of ways to build like giant mercenary companies, right? Certainly, uh, or ones that are driven by something else, right? By winning, right? For example. But for us, you know, the mission-driven was a critical piece. I think if we had wrote that down sooner, and if we had made that like a lot earlier part of our hiring criteria, we would have been able to, you know, save a lot of trouble for ourselves and the folks who joined us who didn't necessarily understand that, right? We also owe that to, to them, you know, in the early days. And so I do think that that would have accelerated a lot um, for what we did. Yeah. Do, do you mind if I add a second lesson? Go for here? it. Go for it. I would I'd give myself this advice of once you understand a strategy that works, lean into it extremely hard, right? And so for us in 2018 in Charlotte, Basically, we were going to realtors, we're knocking on doors, we're driving around, right? We'd spend like, we'd spend like a month or two down in Charlotte at a time uh, and we get the door slammed in our face. Everyone doesn't want to be the first person to use this, right? Uh, no, no one wants to trust their livelihood as a realtor or the most expensive thing they buy as a family uh, with this new company, right? Seven people only raised like less than $5 million at the time. And then, you know, come the middle of that year, right? There are all these iBuyers that come into town and they blanket Charlotte with a lot of marketing. And the marketing to consumers is that basically you don't need an agent, right? And doesn't explicitly say that, but the agents get it, right? And so off the backs of that, the agents all come back to Ribbon and they say, hey, we need your help. Hmm. And I think once we understood this dynamic, going back in time, I would have leaned even harder into it even sooner. And I think we did a good job of this, right? But knowing what I know now, you know, we chose Charlotte when none of the iBuyers were there because we wouldn't know what that dynamic would be. If I could do this again, I'd probably choose an iBuyer market <laughs> to go in and kind of be the white knight from day one. Um, and off the backs of that, you know, we, we were able to raise a $20 million Series A from, from Bain uh, and Matt Harris at, at Bain Capital Ventures. Uh, and, you know, through the next year, we did like a deal a day, two deals a day, but really off to the races very quickly um, because of that dynamic at the market. And I truly believe as startups, you need something external to your company to catch the, the win in your sales, right? But it's on the entrepreneurs, it's on the team to pay attention to that wind to make sure your sale is pointed in the right direction so that you can catch the full force of it, right? That's the second piece of advice I'd probably go back and give myself. I love it. Now, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Best way to reach out and say hi, way at ribbonhome.com, W-E-I at ribbonhome.com. Drop me an email, happy to you know, help with folks, startups, uh, or you know, give advice, or you know, happy to chat about, about Ribbon or real estate as well. Amazing. Well, Wei, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Thank you so much for having me, Alejandro. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers Podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.